but we do end up being frightened, don't we, as we engage with people to reveal our true identity. Because what? Well, well, if they really know what I'm like, will people still love me? And occasionally there are people who have uh, out there that X factor uh, that seem to shine. They seem to shine a little bit more brightly than the rest of us average people. And, uh, well, it can be a thing of great boast if we can call such a one a friend. Oh, yes, I I know that person. Yes. Uh, We had a funeral this past week uh, of a former trade union in Glasgow, and some big people came up and spoke at the funeral. Well, what it is to bask in reflected glory. What it is to be known and yet still loved. Now, I, I want to suggest to you what we're really longing for is God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, the significant relationship that we desire or need is with the God who has made us. The God who knows everything about us. And with that in mind, I want you to turn back to Exodus, the book of Exodus here. If you're visiting this morning, um, you need to know we've been working through the book of Exodus this year. And uh, so we've come to this section of text um, of uh, chapters 25 to 31, which focus on the tabernacle, this tent. And I just want to read a little bit more from God's word, Exodus chapter 29. Page 88, uh, if you are using one of the church Bibles, page 88. Let's read a few more verses. Uh, Chapter 29, verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is God's word. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, help us as we talk of unfamiliar things to us, as we look at these uh, descriptions of furniture and canvas tents and, and uh, of, of priesthoods and their special clothes and altars and sacrifices. Father, we want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and we ask that you would help um, both speaker and hearers to better grasp your word. And Father, our longing 
is that we may meet with you and know you better and see more of your glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. There are 15 chapters left in this book of Exodus. And the extraordinary thing is that 12 of those chapters have to do with this tabernacle, this, this tent, and with the priests and the clothes that they're going to wear and what they're going to do around this tabernacle. And, and if you sit down and read uh, in one sitting the, the rest of the book of Exodus, you will see that actually it is quite repetitive Uh, that chapters 25 to 31 consists of God telling Moses uh, how the tabernacle is to be made. There are lots of details about the materials, the dimensions, uh, what the furniture is supposed to look like and where they're supposed to place it. And then in chapters um, 34 to 40, you get a virtual repeat of all that same information. Uh, But this time you hear about how the workmen actually make it. But in an essence, it is a a repetition of exactly the same uh, descriptions. Now what's going on here? Um, Why does God inspire the author of Exodus to repeat all that information? Uh, In in Hebrew narrative, uh, they didn't really underline things as we do to show their importance. You know, we, we... we can do lots of things to highlight the importance of something. We can underline it. We can make it bold. We can make it bold and italicize. And now we can even make it different colors to, to make it really stand out. Well, they didn't have that. And so whenever you see repetition uh, in, uh, in the Bible, it's not because they were you know, well, running out of things to do. Let's just say it again. No, they're actually saying this is incredibly important. This is really important. Pay attention. This matters. Something very significant is going on. And when you have this degree of reputation, where we're being told this is really important. And we see this at the very beginning of this section, chapter 25 and verse 8. You want to turn back to page 83 with me? Chapter 25 and verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. And I will dwell among them. This is why this is important. This is why it's a big deal. This is no ordinary tent. This is God's tent. This is the place that symbolizes God living amongst his people. And um, there's two main things I want to highlight today, really. And the first is this, the God who comes to dwell. And you see this, in a sense, in the structure of the whole book. The whole book of Exodus is divided into three parts. Uh, Chapters 1 to 18 tells us about the God who delivers. uh, The incredible events of the Passover night, where where they were freed out of slavery, uh, brought out across the wilderness, the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army. But you know what? That's not the high point of the book. Then you've got chapters 19 to 24, the God who demands... As they come before this mountain of Sinai, this fiery mountain with with thunder and lightning and God speaking to them. They hear the voice of God. But you know what? That's, That's not the high point of the book. The high point 
is in this last part of Exodus. The God who dwells in chapters 25 to 40. This is why the writer actually wants us to to linger over the fabrics. (laughs) You know, as blokes, we don't tend to enjoy going to look for curtains with our wives. But I would say, in this instance, it is worth paying note to the fabrics, to the materials. He, He makes us look at how it's being put together, the position, the place of this tabernacle, the lamps. The incense. We are, called, we are made to slow down and think about it all. Now why is that? Well, because every detail is shouting this word, Emmanuel. God is with us. That's what the tabernacle's about. That God's desire is to dwell, to live amongst his people. This has been the purpose of all his great acts of of redemption in the past. Let's turn back to chapter 29, section I just read, and look at that in verse uh, 45. Chapter 29, verse 45. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Their God. This is what it's all been about. I remember in one Christianity Explore group, a, a, a course we run to help people uh, explore what the Christian faith is about. A person saying that uh, they felt that maybe their motivation for becoming a Christian was rather selfish. That they, they thought in their minds that it was about getting fire insurance. They wanted to save their skins and get to heaven. But that is to just distort really the focus of Christianity. It's not merely about destination. Here God makes it plain that the great blessing of the Christian life is that we begin the most significant relationship of our lives that will stretch on into eternity, and that is to know the living God, to know the God who made us. As Augustine, uh, the church father, wrote uh, in his um, confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. And the incredible message of the Bible is that God desires and wants for us to find our rest and our significance and our satisfaction and our joy in Him. That intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, uh, where, where at the end of a, of a, of a workday where Adam named a few more things and explored the garden, and uh, God would come down, it says, in the cool of the day, And as if God comes down and hangs out with Adam and Eve and says, how was your day? Tell me about it. They had this intimate relationship with the living God. And that relationship was one that was destroyed by their willful rejection of God's word, their their rebellion. And yet God is committed to restoring that intimacy once more. He's initiated it all. As it says here, I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is an incredible thing. Doesn't this surprise you about God? Here's a, here's a small nomadic uh, group of people who are living in tents in the wilderness for over 40 years. And the incredible thing is that the great God of the universe, the God who transcends time and space and distance, identifies himself with them. In a sense, God is everywhere. 
God is omnipresent. There's not one bit of this universe that God is not uh, present in. And yet, in a special way, he wanted to identify himself with this people. Living in tents, wandering through the wilderness. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. You see, every element of this tabernacle was portable. You'll read of the furniture that it has rings and it has poles. And the whole point is that wherever they go, God is going with them. And when they stop and when they make camp, uh, the book of Numbers makes it clear that the center of the camp, this is where the tabernacle would be. So wherever they are, when they are looking around, the central focus of their lives, of their tent dwelling, is God is amongst them. And looking at the big picture of all these verses, this is clearly a glorious tent. God has the best tent on the uh, camping ground. Because this is the tent of the glorious King of Kings. Do you know what? There is no greater privilege, there's no greater glory for a people than to have God dwelling among them. Here is the Facebook friend that beats all friendships. What an incredible thing to say, I'm a friend of God. God calls me his friend. He lives amongst us, his people. Amazing thing. All of it. A picture um, in skins and gold and wood and incense. There is a picture of the glory of God who had committed himself to a covenant relationship. Uh, uh, they were the people of God. They were saved for God's glory. And the great glory was to know God. Now all of this, of course, is a picture. All of this is a, an incredible um, pointing forward to Jesus. John's prologue in his gospel makes this clear. He says it this way, the Word, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that phrase there, of course, uh, dwelling amongst us, is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, here's the incredible thing. If you had been born in the right time period, if you'd been born in the first century in uh, the area of Israel, you could have seen the living God in human flesh. Now, it's just not possible that all of us could have been there. And so thankfully, we have eyewitnesses like John who says, well, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, who is full of grace and truth, and he's written down this account so that we too can come to know this Jesus who is the fulfillment of this tabernacle type. Here is the true meeting place between God and man. Here is where the glory of God that was prefigured in the tabernacle finds its fullness. He was full of of, of glory, of grace and truth. We come to Jesus. And it's written down for us in the Bible. That's, that's why we as Christians love the Bible. That's why we spend time reading strange parts of Exodus and stuff. Because Not because we love the Bible so much as that this Bible points us to the one that we love, the Lord Jesus Christ. It reveals his glory to us. Now if I was to ask the question, where... 
where can people go now? If we, we don't have a tabernacle, we don't have the temple that followed from it, that was destroyed AD 70. Where do people go to experience the presence of God? And the answer in the New Testament is this. They go to Charlotte Chapel and other churches that love Jesus and teach his word. See, where you come to a place where uh, you have people who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then as they gather, you have the place where you can experience and know the presence and glory of God. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, let's just keep your finger in Exodus and turn to 1 Corinthians. And uh, you find this on page 1,146. It's such a stupendous claim that we must back it up. 1146. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you, yourselves, now that you there is not singular in the original language, it's plural. Don't you know that you, uh, the church at Corinth, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. Or we could read in Ephesians 2 that as Christian people who've been joined to Jesus Christ, that in him we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. Now, shouldn't that have an impact on uh, our understanding of church? Of course, I don't mean the building so much as, as God's people gather together. How mundane our view of church can be. Uh, many times we are tempted to despise meeting with other Christians. I'm sure you've heard the um, story of the wife trying to get her husband out of bed on a Sunday morning to get to church. And, and, and the husband says, I don't want to go to church. He says from underneath the duvet, I don't want to go to church. It's boring. I don't like the music. And some of the people, they don't like me. Give me one good reason why I should go. And his wife says, grow up. You're the pastor. And you're preaching this morning. Now, it's a pretty sad reason to go to church just because it's your job. What have we forgotten when our view of church is so negative? We're forgetting that God will be present. In a particular and special way, God dwells amongst us by His Spirit when we gather together. Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. What privilege is ours? Why would we miss out on that? Uh, if I could guarantee that you could have uh, a face-to-face meeting with uh, the Queen this week, would you really just yawn and go, actually, I've, uh, there's something on TV I'd like to watch? Or, or, or you know, we'd like to, you could meet President Obama. I'd say, oh, I'm, so, I'm just too busy, I'm sorry, wouldn't want to do that. Um, when we're weighing whether to go to a fellowship Bible study group or the prayer meeting, we should ask the question this, in this way, do I want to experience afresh the presence of Christ among his people? Would that be good? What a blessing. Um, we sometimes miss out on. And as we approach these, these chapters of Exodus, you might want to turn back there, we see, we, as we see all the detail, we need to keep remembering the big point. 
And the big point is this, that God wants, us to, wants to draw near to us and God wants to live among his people. And we should note that back in Acts uh, chapter 25, this amazing offer is dependent upon them responding. You are, uh, verse 1, you are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. All these materials of gold, silver, bronze, fabrics, wood, oil, incense, spices were to come only if the heart of each person prompted them to give. And it's true, actually, that the reason... I mean, how, how does a slave class of people have all this stuff? Well, do you remember how they got it? They plundered it from the Egyptians, remember? The Lord said, as, you, as, as, as they finally will kick you out, ask them for stuff. And they were so relieved to get the people out after the night of Passover, they gave them their gold and their silver and their skins of dagongs from the Red Sea. And, and so they, go, they plundered the Egyptians. In fact, everything that they had was given to them by God. And yet God invites them to give out of his own provision an opportunity for them to give to God so that God's glory would be manifested at the center of their community. 204 Rose Street. That's what you're sitting in. Do you know that? Um, This is not the house of God, but is the place where God's people gather and have done for many, many years. And when we come together uh, to to worship God corporately together, to hear God's word, to celebrate communion with the living God, uh, as we we come to begin to savor something of the glory of of God together, do you know what we do every time we gather? Have you noticed? We take an offering. We do so because we see it in God's word. That's, that's what happened. We can almost, as we saw last week, uh, almost like a worship service, the call to worship, the hearing of God's word, the, the response of faith, uh, the, the, the communion meal with God, uh, Moses entering to the glory of God. And you think, well, but where's the offering? Well, here's the offering, chapter 25. And, you know, as we take up the offering week by week, it's part of our worship. It's a free will offering that we give to God that's used to support the the ministries of our church, the spread of the gospel here and overseas. And why do we do this? That God's glory may be known. That the glory of this great God who has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he may be known. That's why we do it. And, uh, you know, as you read all this stuff, material stuff, just just remember, it's, it's not an insignificant thing. Standing orders, offering bags, retiring offerings, legacies, uh, it's, these are not little trifling things. This is part of our worship. We give because we desire that God's glory would be manifested here in Edinburgh, in this place. That God's glory would be manifested uh, through this country of Scotland, through the United Kingdom, and throughout the world. That's why we give. What's the significance of all the details? Do all the details matter? And the answer is yes. Look at verse uh, 25, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Can you put the next slide up? This is somebody's artistic uh, attempt 
to uh, convey what it may well have looked like. And you see from verse 9 that God is clear that he's giving the design. He's giving the model. He's, he's giving the pattern. Uh, this, is, this is God's design. And Moses is urged to, to, to follow it exactly as God says. And that's a phrase that keeps getting repeated if you read through these chapters. The detail matters here because in some way this is a pattern of Christ. In some way this is a pattern of heaven itself. This is God's visual aid to understanding spiritual realities. Now, I, I grew up in a church where there were two favorite hobby horses. People, some, some of the guys used to get up and preach and used to love to preach the Song of Solomons. Or every time we had a communion service, there was a lot of meditations on the Song of Solomons. And then the, another group of guys loved every aspect of the tabernacle. And they found meaning and significance in the smallest detail of the tabernacle. And sometimes it seemed a bit fanciful to me. Uh, I think you have to use the New Testament to help you control your understanding of the Old Testament. But I think we have to say that the details do matter here. It's worth meditating on and thinking about more deeply. Now, we've got a lot of text here, and um, we're not going to get through everything in the same detail. But I want us to focus on the most important thing in this tabernacle. What is the most important thing? Well, it's the first thing that's described in verse 10. The Ark of the Covenant. we have this description of a large treasure box. This Ark of the Covenant. This is the one bit of furniture that's placed in in the most holiest place in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And the furniture is not made to kind of fill up the tent. The tent is there to house this beautiful wooden chest overlaid with pure gold. And what's important placed inside this box, verse 16. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you, which is the, the book of the covenant of the chapters we've just gone by. Uh, it, it is the Ten Commandments engraved uh, in stone with the finger of God. This is a powerful picture. I mean, we're describing a beautiful gold box. You think, well, there's the treasure. There's a gold box. You know the foolishness of, the, of Indiana Jones? This is some sort of magic box? Well, no. Here's the significance of this box. The treasure's not the golden box. The treasure's what's inside the box. The, the treasure is the significance of a covenant relationship with God. The significance is that God has revealed himself in the ten words into a binding agreement with his people. God can be known because he's made himself known. And you think of the psalmist in in 119, he says this, I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. And I think he's reflecting on this, the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, it's glorious, the gold box is glorious, but actually the real glory is 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 the commands of God in the box. God can be known because he's made himself known. He's communicated clearly. How would Israel enjoy the presence of God amongst them? Well, this picture couldn't be clearer, could it? Because it is by hearing and obeying God's commandments. As God's people obey him, they show that they worship and love and honor God as their king. 
Before we panic, though, because we become aware of how in actually almost in every way, even in, in our desires, if not in all our actions, we, we break these commandments, then you need to reflect on the lid that is on this box. It's, it's, it's got engraved upon it, symbolically, the cherubim. We have this stupid kind of art history which cherubs are little babies, you know, with big cheeks. Cherubim, as you read the Bible, are, uh, are, are the guardians of God's holy presence. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he places cherubim to guard, to prevent people going back. Uh, as John, uh, as Ezekiel uh, sees the throne room of God, he sees the throne uh, upon these living creatures, the cherubim. Uh, the, the vision of cherubim are of awesome beings. They're not God's messengers who go out throughout the world. They are, they are God's angelic beings who um, are the gods who stop anything that is unholy from entering into the presence of God. And you have symbolically the cherubim. And in a sense, above the cherubim, Symbolize is the very throne of God. There's no visual representation of that. God has forbidden that. Forbid it, for, forbade that. But in a sense, what you have in this box is a picture that you have come into the very holy presence of God. This is God's throne room. Uh, the psalmist and other places will often talk about God in this way. The God who is enthroned above the cherubim. And here this box is almost his footstool. And his Ten Commandments within it. And the wonderful thing is the way it describes this lid. Verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. From Martin Luther's translation onwards and John Wycliffe um, when he did his English translation that got carried on to our Bibles, it got translated in this way, a mercy seat. So guys who are used to older versions of the Bible are used to calling it this, the mercy seat. You shall make a mercy seat, an atonement cover of pure gold. It's a, it's a beautiful name. This is a box containing God's perfect law that we actually fail to keep. But there's a lid, and it's called the mercy seat. It is the place of atonement that sits underneath the throne of God and his cherubim. My friends, our only hope is that mercy triumphs over justice. And this is where God symbolically meets his people. Look at verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for this rites. This is where God will meet with them. Here's the access to the throne room of heaven. God sitting above the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant as his footstool, and rings and poles that are never withdrawn because this box is so holy it cannot be touched. So here, here's a bit of furniture which conveys an incredible amount of theology for us. And the question is, how does this work? How can the mercy seat triumph over God's justice? And, and how can God... A holy God 
be with an unholy, sinful, rebellious people? Well, you have to read on in your Bibles and you come to the book of Leviticus and it describes the day of atonement, the day where the high priest alone was allowed to enter into the most holy place. He only did it once a year and he did it with the blood of the sin offering for the people and he would sprinkle the blood seven times on the atonement cover. This beautiful box, blood is sprinkled upon it once a year and that animal sacrifice would substitute for the death of sinful people. And when the blood was applied to the atonement cover, the mercy seat, God's anger would be turned away. And none of that ceremony makes any sense until you understand it's all a visual aid pointing to Jesus. It is surprising for people who encounter the Gospels to realize how much of the, of the book is focused on the death of Jesus. This is so different to other biographies. But this is the point. This perfect man had come to die in the place of sinners. God had come in human flesh to make in himself a sacrifice so that a holy God and a sinful people could become at one with God once again. Only through the blood of sacrifice. So listen to Romans chapter 3. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely. That means considered to have been right with God, have done right by God. We're, we're declared right with God freely by God's grace. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in his blood. That word there that translated in Romans chapter 3 is exactly the word here for the atonement cover. Jesus is the reason that God can extend mercy to us sinful people and remain just because Jesus takes the rap for us. He pays the full price of our sin. He freely chose to substitute himself in our place. And, and, and that is some of the symbolism that is caught up in this central piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's just the one. We don't have time to look at all the others, really. But in a sense, each part of the tabernacle is important. It's designed by God as a symbol of his presence and all point forward to Jesus. Consider the table of bread in verse 23 to 30. Um, Twelve loaves of bread were placed on this golden table every week. A loaf for each tribe. This is not to feed God. God doesn't need anything that we give to him. But it is a reminder, in a sense, in God's presence of what his people need. Give us today our daily bread. And, and placed on the table, the people could know that the God who dwells among them, amongst them ever had before him the knowledge of their needs here was the God who continues to keep providing for his people and of course Jesus stands and says I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst I think about the lampstand in verses 31 onwards um when you think about this tent, it had four different covers. It would have been incredibly dark, and the Holy of Holies would have been pitch black. And so the, 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 the golden lampstand serves a very practical thing that it illuminates the darkness there. 
a picture perhaps of God's never-ending life and holiness. This was a lamp that was to never go out. They were instructed how to maintain it day and night so that it was ever blazing and shining in the darkness there. And of course, you, you can't help but think of Jesus, can you, who stands and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or you can read on to the bronze basin where the priests made themselves physically and ceremonially clean. Before they entered into the holy place, they washed themselves. And I think it's fascinating in John's gospel, on the night before his death, Jesus stoops down with a basin of water and a towel and washes his disciples' feet. And then he pronounces this, with the exception of Judas, he says this, you are clean. Or the bronze altar. Now actually, most... the regular Israelites, really this is all they kind of saw of the tabernacle. It was the bronze altar outside in the courtyard. This was the place of animal sacrifice and offering. It was a perpetual reminder to the people uh, uh, before their eyes of these facts. Sin deserves death. Forgiveness is only through the shedding of blood. And in God's grace, he'd enabled a way that it was possible that a substitute could die in your place. Instead of you dying, another would die. And and these animal sacrifices symbolized that. And yet they needed a priest to bring them to God to take that blood and apply it. And John the Baptist stands and points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus stood there and said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so in the type of the tabernacle fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God has come to dwell amongst us. But I want to stress as I close today that God can only be approached through faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. We can't come to God any way that we want to. Uh, These verses tell us not only about the dwelling God, but the dangerous God. God is central in their campsite but everything about this tent also speaks about separation Uh, it was divided into different areas and you could see that uh, most people just came into the the courtyard around the tabernacle where the bronze altar was there where they would offer their sacrifices and the priests were only allowed uh, to enter into the first area of the tent the holy place and the high priest only the back of that place the holy of holies and that once a year and these coverings speak of uh, that God is present and yet he's separate God's presence is, is holy and is dangerous to people several times they're told that they need to prepare themselves in, in special ways because if they did not they were in danger of dying the high priest had bells on his um, um, Close so that as he walked, it made a noise so people knew that he hadn't dropped dead in the Holy of Holies. He went in with a rope tied around his leg because if the bell stopped ringing, they would pull him out. No one dared going after him. And over and over, as you read this text, you have this picture of the utter holiness of God. It is a dangerous thing for sinners to approach a holy God. They could only do it a particular way, only the way God has said, through sacrifice. And they could only come, in a sense, um, through the high priest. And chapters 28 and 29 give us incredible descriptions of the clothes that this man must wear. These holy clothes. 
there's much value in considering the significance of these things and, and there's much in there that's picked up in the New Testament but what you see in chapter 29 is what a business was involved in even getting this priest ready for, for this high priest to even get access to the holy place it was a seven day process that required a bull to be sacrificed as a sin offering just to start off with and, and it was a seven day process and that led into a never-ending uh, need to offer up animal sacrifices on the part of the people. We can't approach God any way we want. God's not a supermarket where we can, can decide, like consumers, to walk down whichever religious aisle we want and, and choose the products we want of our own way. People want that. They want a spirituality, a pick-and-mix spirituality of how they think they like to relate to the transcendent God. My friends, Exodus makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear, there's only one way you can approach this holy God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood for you. And by... Uh, acknowledging your sin, seeking his forgiveness, and coming under the blood of Christ. This is the only way you can really relate to the living God. We need a priest, a sacrifice. We need a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's turn to that as we close. Hebrews chapter 7, page 1205. Verse um, 26. 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And like the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus Christ perfectly reveals God to us. Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that can get us right with God. Jesus Christ is the priest, the one mediator by which we can come to this God. And because of that, we can approach God, not with fear, but with confidence. As it goes on to say, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I, I guess I, the question is, what's holding us back from God? The most significant, saving, and satisfying relationship has been made possible by God. He's initiated it. He, he's inviting us to draw near by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you come to Christ? Have you laid hold of him? What a joy and a privilege to be his people. The people amongst whom God promises to dwell by his spirit. Let's pray. Forgive us, gracious Father, for having small views of you. To have small views of your glory, of your holiness of your majesty. Forgive us, Lord, that we have such big views of ourselves, our uh, goodness, our rightness, righteousness, that we should think that we could pick and choose how we can relate to you. Well, forgive us, Lord, 
And we thank you. There is a redeemer that you provided in your son. Thank you for inviting us to come near. Oh Lord, help us live as believers uh, in this coming week with a conscious sense of the privilege of being your holy people, of walking with you. Give us, as we gather uh, week in and week out, Lord, uh, a hunger to see more of your glory, a hunger for more of your presence, a joy and delight in you that will be greater than the temporary pleasures and things that this world holds out to us to distract us with its idolatry. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.